0: you take your Bibles, let's go back to Hebrews 4 and uh, outline you should have for today's message in your bulletins. Jesus' sinless life. We have looked at several Gospel truths so far. The first was the authority for what you believe. The authority for how you should live. That is found in the Bible. The Christian Scriptures. More specifically, sadly, we have to specify in Christian scriptures, the 66 books of the Protestant canon. Because Catholicism falls under this umbrella of Christianity, but they add a number of books in there. A second gospel truth was there is only one true God. And he has always only been the one true God. And he has always existed eternally in three persons. Fully God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The third gospel truth was that this God is absolutely holy. He is majestic. He is above and separate from everything in creation. Everything else, it depends on creation. There is not a single aspect of who God is that depends on creation. And he is absolutely pure as a holy God. Everything he does lines up with his holiness so that he is a righteous God. A fourth gospel truth is that everyone has fallen short of his glory. He made Adam and Eve, and he made them good, a kind of a creaturely holiness, but it was an untested holiness. And when that test came in the Garden of Eden with with Satan uh, uh, occupying that serpent, Adam and Eve fell into sin. They willingly uh, disobeyed God, fell from his glory, broke his laws. And we saw in Romans three, what aspect of life, what aspects of life, are affected by sin, our very character? There is none who is good. Not only none that does good, there is none who, who are good. Our character is affected. Our, our communication is completely corrupted by sin. Do you remember how our, our tongues or our throats are compared there in Romans 3? An open grave. Our character, our communication, our conduct entirely affected by sin. There's no fear of God Uh, before uh, the eyes of the unbeliever. And so everyone is spiritually dead. Everyone will die physically. And apart from God's grace, everyone deserves eternal death, eternal separation from the Lord. Uh, Not experiencing the tiniest hint of mercy. Not even a little drop, as we saw last week, with the rich man uh, in hell. So sinners in themselves are hopeless. No sinner can do anything about that. Sinners trying to find hope in any other human being, it is a hopeless case. In any kind of human organization, it is a hopeless case. The only hope, the only hope is in Jesus Christ. They need spiritual life. Their sins before God, they are a debt that they could never fully pay. If it was uh, in, in one, one side of their balance sheet, it would be as, as infinite as could be. And that needs to be entirely wiped away. But not only that, not only does there need to be forgiveness and that wiping away, you can't just be neutral before God and accepted by him. You must be as righteous as God is. That's the other column uh, of, the, of the bank account, as it were. We must not only have the debt. We must not only have the debt completely paid. We must have a full account of righteousness. Can you wipe away that sin, any of it, all of it? No. Can you add the needed righteousness? No. The only hope is in Jesus Christ. His perfect life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection from the dead. For believers, it wipes out the sin. So there's forgiveness. And it gives you a full standing before him. Uh, we're going to be looking specifically at his perfect life today. And how that impacted uh, the, author, uh, the readers of the book of Hebrews. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. If you want to learn more about this concept of, of us gaining Christ's righteousness. On uh, Ryan's prayer this morning. He thanked the Lord for the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And that's the, the crediting of it to our account. In your daily devotional, you'll be reading uh, Romans 3 and 4 and 5. And you will walk through those truths. And I provide some, some teaching along that line. We need to ask then, who was Jesus? What kind of a man was he? Not only so that you know this, but so that you will be the best gospel witness you can be. When you are talking to the lost about Christ, they need to know Who Jesus was. They probably know the name Jesus. Because it's probably in their repertoire of swear words. That they will say in anger or amazement. But who was he? Who was he? They might know him uh, because they live in a country that it's still a little bit around Christmas time. They might see little baby Jesus in the manger. Might hear Christmas carols sung at Walmart. And maybe at Easter time, though not a whole lot, uh, they might hear about the resurrection of Christ. They need to understand who Jesus was. Here in Hebrews, this was a book written to Jewish Christians. We don't know who the author was. Some of you might have an opinion about who the author of this book was. Some say it was Paul, some say it was Apollos, some say it was other individuals. We don't know. Known only to the Lord. So I just kind of affectionately refer to him as the author of Hebrews. Isn't that really, you know, you paid me for that? You know, well, that's who he was, the author of Hebrews. These Jewish Christians were experiencing great persecution. Christianity was not a legal religion. Judaism was a legal religion. So these Jewish Christians are part of an illegal religion and they're being persecuted. So what do you think the temptation could have been for these Jewish Christians? Go back to Judaism so that they wouldn't experience that, that uh, persecution. This book was written to exhort those Jewish Christians to stay faithful to Christ, to persevere, to keep going. And the author of Hebrews shows how Jesus is better. That's the key word for the book of Hebrews. He is better than any and every aspect of Judaism. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the Aaronic priesthood, those priests that came from Aaron. He's better than all the sacrifices. He is better. He is supreme. Don't go back. Don't go back because you're going to something that's nowhere near as good as Jesus Christ. He is better. Let's consider first. Jesus' life and character. Some uh, verses we'll look at quickly here. Verse four, chapter four, verse fourteen. Seeing then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. That's the first thing. He's called the Son of God. This is a name. It is a title. He's God the Son, and it's also talking about his character. He has all the characteristics in all the aspects, every attribute of God. He is the Son of God. Number two, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Number two, he was tempted, but he did not sin. He was tempted, but he did not sin. The bulk of the message, will look at that. So I won't say anything more about number two. Because we're going to look more in detail at that. He was tempted, but he did not sin. Number three, drop down to chapter five, verses four through six. No man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. But it was he who said to him, you're my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Number three, he was called by God to be a priest. He is a priest. And he's a priest not because of a career choice, it's because he was called by God. A priest is a mediator. A mediator. Someone who goes between human beings sinful human beings, and a holy God who intercedes for those, who does things in their place. Jesus is our perfect mediator. Verse 7, In the days of his flesh, so number 7, he is fully human. He is fully human. If you ever have a problem with uh, sleeping at night, I have a a couple books on my shelf that can uh, walk through different theological um, battles that occurred in church history. Some of the earliest church battles occurred with, well, who is Jesus? Was he fully God? Was he fully man? And you have a a number of false doctrines that happen. Nestorianism and uh, some other fun-sounding things like that. As I said, they will help you go to sleep because you'll start reading it and you just kind of nod off. Unless you're someone you know, like me who really gets into that kind of thing, there's nothing new under the... Okay, and those false doctrines that were present in the first few centuries, they are present today. One of the... A couple of the main false doctrines about Jesus is he was just a man. He wasn't God. Another false doctrine that was present then is, well, he was God, but... For him to take on flesh would have corrupted himself. Uh, You've heard of Plato, okay, that philosopher. Plato had this idea that everything that's really good is spirit, and anything that's material is evil and bad. Well, God made everything material, didn't he? And when he was done making it, what did he call it? Good. So you have this, it's called Platonic dualism, and that affected a number of Christians So that they said, well, Jesus couldn't have been flesh. He had to have been kind of a spirit being. Well, what's to say here? He was flesh. He was a full human. Every aspect of his life. Continuing, number 5, verse 7. When he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Number 5, he prayed. He was a human being. And your Savior prayed. He prayed to the Father. You read the Gospels and you read how he prayed all through the night. He'd get up early in the morning and would pray. He'd go to a quiet place and would pray. He'd pray with his disciples. He was a man of prayer. A man of prayer. Number seven. I'm sorry, number six, the last one in verse seven. He was heard because of his godly fear. That's number six. He had godly fear. This is what the Bible, our authority, tells us about your Savior. He had a godly fear. We're learning about what godly fear looks like in the book of Hebrews. Um, Godly fear is a reverent faith that exclusively worships, serves, loves, and obeys the Lord. That's on your daily devotional. You don't have to write it down, okay? This is what characterized Jesus. He had a reverent belief and fear and love for the Lord that characterizes life. Last verse eight: Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Number seven: He obeyed God. Now this is one of those passages, uh, one of those truths. Kind of like he was tempted. He obeyed. This is kind of one of those passages that kind of blows our minds. Whoa, this is the eternal son, and he obeyed. He wasn't just eternal son as spirit, he was also eternal, he was also the son as a human being. And should human beings obey God? Yup. Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. He obeyed the Lord. That gives you kind of a, a snapshot here of his life and character. Number two, that brings us a question that we addressed with the number two above. He was tempted but did not sin. How could Jesus never sin if he was fully human? This is a question that you will get as you talk to unbelievers. And they'll say, wait a minute, time out. How could he sin? How could he not sin? He was a human being. Everyone does what's wrong. And there's a sense in which they're right. Everyone, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, how do you answer that? I'll give you the first. The first. There's two main answers to this. The first is really short and very simple. Think back to the very beginning. Who were the first two people God created? Adam and Eve. And were they created as sinners? No, they were not. There was a point in time... In human existence, you already had two individuals on earth who were without sin. Being here's the point, being human doesn't require sinning. Being human doesn't require sinning. Example A, Adam and Eve. What about Jesus then? Well, the second thing is that Jesus could not sin. He could not sin. Boy, there's some debate about this one out there. If you were to uh, put into your internet search, uh, could Jesus sin, you're going to get some different answers. Um, Almost, let me back up. Every true Christian, I almost gave a little uh, way out, but we really shouldn't say that. We cannot say that. Every true Christian believes Jesus did not sin. And you better agree with that. We might stumble a bit about the whole temptation thing. But if Jesus did one sin, could he save you from your sins? No, he couldn't. Because at the moment he, be, he did one sin, he becomes a what? A sinner. And the wages of sin is death. There are many who say he did not sin, but he hypothetically could have sinned. My point here is, no, he couldn't. It was impossible for him to sin. How can that be? How does that work out? Well, what is temptation? Temptation is an allurement to sin. It is an allurement to sin. This is a definition I give in the little fundamental Christian truths booklet. I forgot the number. It is an allurement to sin, and that allurement to sin, it can come from your sin nature. It can come from Satan. It can come from this world. That's what temptation is. Now, did Jesus have a sin nature? No, he did not. And so he never had any, sin, any temptation to sin rising up from his own heart. Do you? We all do, don't we? Because we all have a sin nature. Adam was, or Jesus was not a physical descendant of Adam. But he was a full human being. How does this work out? Wait a minute. How does this happen? I have, if you didn't know, grandchild number seven coming in July. Andy and Jocelyn are expecting a girl, right? I found out they were having a girl before I made my grandfatherly prediction, and I'm glad I found out because I would have been wrong. I was going to guess a boy. But I can keep my 100% accuracy roll right now. Jesus' earthly mother was who? Jesus' earthly father that begot him was who? And I better hear crickets right now. Because Jesus was born of a virgin, wasn't he? We look at that every Christmas season. The Spirit enabled. That's what it means there in Matthew 1 and Luke 2. Enabled Mary to conceive when it says the Holy Spirit will come upon you. It's not something weird as in the gods cohabiting with human beings. It is the Holy Spirit miraculously enabled Mary to conceive. How do we get a sin nature? Through our connection with Adam by being physical descendants of him. So-and-so begot so-and-so. Read Genesis 5 and they die. That would never happen with Jesus. He did not have a sin nature. But allurement to sin not only comes from your sin nature, it comes from two other sources. And what were those? The first was Satan and the second was the world. Was Jesus ever tempted by Satan? Sure was. Matthew chapter 4, I think Luke chapter 4 details that. It came from outside of himself. That was a real temptation remember he did not have a sin nature that appealed to that temptation and an illustration along this line might be something like this we're walking down oh the sidewalk of Orwell there's a real urban area we're walking behind someone Uh, they drop a hundred dollar bill what could be the sinful temptation that could come from our heart? Pick it up and do what? Keep it. That would have never entered Jesus' mind. It was never in his heart. He would have picked it up and done what? Hey, you dropped this. He would have given it back to him. There would never have been an allurement to sin in his own heart. However, Satan walking along could have said, Hey, Jesus, just take that and keep it. You can build the temple. That's an external temptation. We not only have it from external, from Satan, we have it from our own hearts. Temptation not only comes from a sin nature, it comes from the world. Well, think about when Jesus was on the cross and the Pharisees mocked him. He says he's the Son of God. If he's the Son of God, let him come down. Remember when they mocked him in that way? How did Jesus respond to this temptation from Satan? Well, the difference between the eternal the eternal all-powerful Son of God. And the limited Satan is just that. Christ had the... Remember, he's not just man. He is the God-man. He had the full power of God to resist that temptation. He also was completely holy. And so when you had like the Pharisees and temptation to come from the world, he had that holiness to help him uh, say no to that without the, the tiniest inclination toward that. Could Jesus be, Could Jesus sin? No, it wasn't even possible. Could Jesus be tempted? Yes, he was tempted. He was tempted. So I hope that helps you understand uh, this whole concept here of he was tempted. The scripture clearly says it in all points as we are, but yet without sin. So number three, Jesus was tempted, but he did not sin. He was tempted, but he did not sin. And for these three points, I'm going to go back to, uh, don't turn there, but I'm going to use those three points we looked from Romans 3, verses 10 to like verse 19 or so, I think, uh, that talked about how much has sin affected us. Number one, Jesus' character as a man. Jesus' character as a man. Jesus was entirely holy and righteous. Oh, and there's a point. Let me just stop. There's a point uh, application I wanted to make um, from Jesus' life as a holy individual uh, to be able to resist sin. You know, the more holy you are, the more righteous you are, the more you'll be able to resist temptation to sin. The more Christ-like you are, the better you're going to be able to resist sin. That's why... Sanctification is growing more like, do you remember? More like Christ and less like the world by the Spirit's help and personal discipline. So, just a point there. Back to Jesus' character, he was holy and righteous. His nature, his disposition, his outlook was entirely holy. This is his character. His thoughts, his affections... His responses inside of him were holy and righteous. Every time. His feelings. His view towards his parents. The fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. He always honored them. The tenth commandment. You shall not covet. You shall not covet. That's an internal thing. He never looked with sinful longing for, someone, for something someone else had. He was perfectly content with what the Lord had blessed him with. His character as a man was absolutely holy. Number two, Jesus' communication. His communication, note again, as a man. The gift of speech is part of being made in God's image we are able to communicate statements to one another. Our dogs communicate. Your dogs communicate. Our cats communicate. Uh, We have had fish over the years. And and I'm putting quotes around this communicate, okay? Our fish used to communicate. How did they used to communicate? Well, we would come to the aquarium. We'd have this little round spherical canister in our hands. we start to go near the top... And what would those fish do? They kind of wiggle like this. You know, They're not saying no. That's not what they're communicating. They're saying yes. And no is yes, and <laughs> fish are weird. Okay. They're not really communicating, though, in the sense of, dear master, I would really prefer a, a higher brand and quality of fish food and not just that Dollar General stuff that you're giving us. which I would respond, Dollar General or the toilet? Which will it be? (laughs) They're not going to communicate with me in that way. You and I can communicate. Your children communicate. Uh, We communicate not only by things that we say, but we communicate by our expressions that also transmit intent. When that little one squirrels up his face When you tell him to do something, and he says, No! He's communicating, isn't he? Jesus always communicated in a way that was holy and righteous every time what he spoke and how he spoke. We communicate not only by the content, but by how it is expressed sometimes called body language, the intonations of a voice. And his speech was always reverent to God and truthful and edifying to people. He always honored God's name, the third commandment. "You shall not take the name of your Lord of the Lord your God in vain. He never did that and the ninth commandment he always spoke the truth you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor he always spoke the truth number 3 jesus conduct as a man his conduct as a man he was a, a man who worshiped the lord because that was how men should what men should do he was a man of prayer He worshipped according to the Mosaic law. That was in force while he was on the earth. When he was around an individual who said, well, we worship here and you worship there, the Samaritan woman. he, He said, he corrected her. You shouldn't worship there. The only true place for worship is in Jerusalem at the temple through the Levitical priesthood. When Jesus did work as a carpenter, He did his work well, honestly, righteously. When Jesus entered into his public ministry, when he was announced as Israel's king and Christ, he did those works that were necessary in preaching and in the supporting miraculous works. Jesus never worshipped any other god, the first and second commandments. He always observed the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. He never murdered the sixth commandment. He was sexually pure, the seventh commandment. He never stole the eighth commandment. Have you kept every one of the commandments perfectly? Jesus did. And this is who Jesus is. So number four, what does this mean for Christians? What does this mean for Christians? Look with me again at verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Number one, what this means, because Jesus is perfect, is you must persevere in the faith. You must persevere in the faith. He says, hold fast our confession. Hold it fast. Don't let it go. Don't give it away. Don't let it slip out of your hands. And the confession here is talking about declaring your faith. It is an an aspect of allegiance. You're accepting it and you're saying that it is true. It is an open public declaration. I went to public school. Public school. Grades kindergarten through 12th grade, 1975 to 1988. So, kids, that was a while ago. Um, I went to public school every morning. We began every morning in every class doing what, do you think? Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, and so on. I don't know if that's done today, but that was a public Declaration of what? What's that A word? Allegiance. And the author of Hebrews is saying to these Jewish Christians who are being persecuted, he's pointing them to a better, the perfect Savior. And he says, don't let your declaration of allegiance go. Don't stop being committed in that way. Jesus' sinless life is not something that is a non-essential of the Christian faith. It is essential. It must be believed. It's not a non-essential on the level, say, of how should you baptize someone. Baptism through the church history has been correctly done by immersion. By sprinkling and by pouring. I have wonderful brothers in Christ, and they have baptized in this way. And so, when we have some fun uh, explanation and fun talks, and they say, So, Dan, if someone was baptized by, you know, sprinkling or pouring, what are you saying? And so, can you guess my answer? They weren't baptized. Well, how can you say that? And then I point to the scripture and, they, and we go round and round like this. Are they unbelievers because of that? No. Is that an important truth? Yes, it is an important truth. That will affect whether or not you can be a member of oral Bible church. But that does not affect your salvation. What about Jesus' sinless life? If somebody wants to become a member of Oral Bible Church and they deny, they say that Jesus did sin, should we accept them into membership? Absolutely not. You know why? Because they have not been saved if they truly believe that, if that's rooted down in their hearts. They believe Jesus is a sinner. So I would encourage you, Christian, as part of persevering in your faith and holding fast, and you could look later on in chapter 5 where it talks about, you know, we... I had Jim stop at verse 10, kind of in the middle of a sentence. And then you'll look at verse 11. Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. One of the main reasons Christians start to fall away is because they haven't been growing. They haven't been rooted. They haven't matured in their faith. Do you know why you believe what you say you believe? That's the confession part here. Do you understand the Christian faith? What temptations are causing you to loosen your grip? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which I'll uh, reference in a little bit. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses Set aside the things that are keeping you from running as you should. Jesus said, if there's sin that offends you, even if it's your eye or your arm, what do you need to do? Get rid of it. Because we're talking about eternal life here. Sin deceives you into thinking that that is the easier way. That's the better way. In this life, it often is. It is often easier to go the way of your sin nature. It is easier to go the way of other sinners. It is harder to fight against that. But that is the way of life. That is not what earns life. That is the way of someone who has been saved. Number two, because Jesus is who he is, you must rest in the true Savior. You must rest in and the true Savior. Verse 15, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus knows what it is like to live in this world. You and I live in this world, don't we? We have great trials, and tribulation, and difficulty, and disappointments. He knows what it's like to live in. In this world. He was not isolated. From the effects of sin. He wasn't isolated from temptation. We can. Weep with those who weep. And rejoice with those who rejoice. But even that. Is limited. By our own imperfections. And weaknesses. Jesus. Is perfect. And he went through it all. And you know what that means for you, Christian? He has a perfect understanding. Unclouded by sin and personal failure. You might say, that doesn't really what makes a good sympathizer. I would contend that yielding to, yielding to temptation, that doesn't make you a good sympathizer. That makes you another sinner who also needs sympathy. Would you have greater help and confidence from someone who's failed? Or someone who's succeeded? Jesus didn't fail during this life, did he? He gained the victory. He defeated sin and death. You need someone that can do more than say, I feel your pain. But yet can do nothing about it. He endured, Jesus did all that, and was victorious, and he led the way. When I'm trying to figure out a problem with one of my vehicles, and I don't want to pay the mechanic the $80 or $90 an hour, that, or whatever it might be, I go to a trusted source for help and instruction, if my brother's not next door, YouTube. And I'll type in the problem. The vehicle year, make, model, and all that. And I will find any number of videos. You men know exactly what I'm talking about because you do the same thing probably too. Unless you have Daniel as a son or a brother. I can't tell you how many times I've punched in the thing and I've it, it comes in the description exactly my problem. Like, yes, here it is. And so I'll start watching it five 10, 15 minutes. This keeps going. I speed it up. And all it was, was a guy explaining his problem, hoping someone could help him figure it out. (laughs) That's not what I need. I need someone to help me with it. Who's figured it out. Who's beat it. When it's just us who have given in to temptation and failed at life, trying to help each other figure out how to deal with temptation and sin, that's kind of like watching one of those YouTube videos that really doesn't give you any answers because we don't have any answers. The only one who can is the one who successfully resisted and defeated sin. And that's who you have. In verse 15, he is one who sympathizes, a true Savior who has been victorious, who can truly help you. We're not done yet, but I want you to take your burgundy hymnal and turn to me, just to illustrate this, to hymn 491. To illustrate the fact that we have a high priest who sympathizes with his weakness, with, with our weakness. 491 in your burgundy hymnals. Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth or song as the burdens press and the cares distress and the day grows weary and long, verse 2? Does Jesus care when my way is dark with a nameless dread and fear as the daylight fades into deep night shades? Does he care enough to be near? Does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong? When in my deep grief I find no relief, though my tears flow all the night long? Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me, and my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks? Is this aught to him? Does he see? And what's the answer, congregation? Yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched. With my grief, I know my Savior cares. Christian, rest in the true Savior. Number three, because Jesus is the perfect man, you must pray. You must pray, verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Sinless Jesus was devoted to prayer. The busiest times of his life, he carved out time to pray. Pressures of life, like no other, he prayed. The attacks of Satan, he prayed. Christian, when you go through the pressures... When you're experiencing great difficulty, you have a great high priest in the heavens here. He is like no other high priest, because not only is he the perfect high priest, but he's the perfect sacrifice. He is a never-dying high priest, unlike any other priest. He is a sinless high priest. Verse 14, he's a, 15, he's a sympathetic high priest. And so you can go to the throne of grace, it says here, boldly, and the idea here is with confidence. You never have to be tentative, hesitant, or uncertain. Because will he hear me? Will he reject me? Will he say, I don't have time for you? Every expectation you will have, you have of being heard by your Heavenly Father. At the throne of grace, Christ's atonement was accomplished in full. That's the throne of grace. Christ's atonement was accomplished in full. And so his help is always available. What did we just sing a little while ago? Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears, the bleeding sacrifice in my behalf. You will obtain grace. You will find grace. That is promised help. That is true help. That is perfect help. Look at the last part of verse 16. In time of need. The idea here is His grace and mercy. When you go to pray for grace and help, grace and mercy, it is tailor made to your exact situation. And that's who you have in our Savior. When you go through life's daily routines, pray for God's grace and mercy. When you're overwhelmed, you need to seek God's help and grace and mercy because you have a great high priest. Nothing less than a perfect Savior will do. And what do you have, Christian? You have a perfect Savior.